This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode. We have historian and New York Times bestselling author, John Barry. That's right. John Barry coming live from the French Quarter in New Orleans uh, to the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And this is such an interesting conversation because basically, Adam, we've been trying to understand COVID-19 from as many different perspectives and different right. vantage points as we can. And uh, one that we haven't really thought much about was looking at it from a historical perspective. When was the last pandemic? What did that look like? Is it useful uh, to look at the Spanish flu of 1918 as uh, a guide for how COVID-19 is going to play out? Um, so this is a this is a, a great conversation, and, and man, John Barry does not disappoint. Yeah, exactly. Such and an interesting guy. He's a very interesting guy, and the book is called The Great Influenza. So if if uh, you did want to actually pick up a copy, um, John can tell you at the end of the program, at the end of the interview, he talks about how he feels you should buy his book. But it is a great book for sure, and it's, it's such an interesting conversation. But Matt, before we get to our conversation with John. How is the market? So this is interesting because we had uh, our last episode only two days ago. We were waiting on the stats for March. And it's funny, um, the stats in March, which we are sending out today, uh, are, are paint a relatively rosy picture. Right. Um, 
But what I really think these stats suggest more than anything else is what March could have been um, sure. had the last two weeks uh, basically uh, continued a pace as opposed to shutting down the way that, that, that it did. Yeah, and, and, and that's really it, right? Because, I mean, I, I don't think these stats are going to be too reflective of what's actually happening in the market right now. I think the April stats will be the, the, the real telling uh, month, right? Um, well, or, or and more reflective, I think, of, of the reality of the situation. But a, a few thoughts on that. Like one is March stats to me feel, or the first two weeks of March feels like it could have been a year or two ago already, right? In terms of just how much has changed uh, in the world and right. in uh, the Vancouver real estate market. But then the other interesting thing, even looking at April, I think April will show yeah, low inventory, low sales. Um, but then what does that mean for when the, the thaw eventually happens? And I'm not even sure those stats will be that useful then, right? Because we're in such a unique lockdown situation that the stats seem to be unre- unreflective of uh, of what's to come. Yeah, and in you know, we've been as as realtors, we've been identified as uh amongst the list of essential service providers in BC. But really, I mean the 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 language around this is it's not business as usual. I mean, um we're not seeing a lot of people come to market um unless they really have to right now, right? It's it's people that need to sell their homes because they've already purchased or alternatively, they're moving, relocating, or something's going on in their life that requires them to sell right now. We're also seeing a lot of the buyers have, if, if it's not an essential buy, they've moved to the sidelines. Yeah, Adam, that's exactly right. It seems like nobody's, nobody's shopping unless they absolutely have to. I mean, in part because uh, we are supposed to be uh, staying at home as much as possible. We're right. supposed to be social distancing. So if you were thinking of moving, uh, you've undoubtedly put that on hold. But also for others in the market, you know, we, we work with a lot of investors. Vancouver sees a lot of investors in the market. But consider uh, this at, at, at this exact moment. If you were buying an investment property, obviously, it's very difficult to find a tenant because nobody's out uh, looking to make a move right now. Uh, and and secondly, there's all sorts of with the mortgage deferrals uh, and the rent deferrals and the the emergency measures uh, with the Residential Tenancy Act, which we're hopefully going to be talking about uh, in a lot more detail next week. Uh, there's a lot of risk to to, right. <laughs> to taking a rental uh, to market right now to find a tenant. So there's a lot of challenges out there, but. For the most part, I would say people are hunkered down and uh, and staying home, and for that reason, those those stats are are basically useless. Yeah, and I, you know what? It's funny too because we what we do all the time is we're always speaking to people in the industry and getting other perspectives, and we're always talking to other agents that we know who who sell a lot of real estate in Vancouver, and that seems to be kind of the consensus is everybody's kind of in this holding pattern, uh, taking a wait and see approach. Exactly right. But Adam, before we get to our talk with John Barry, we are sponsored this week by Oakland Realty. This is our brokerage, a fantastic place to be, although uh, we haven't been in uh, to the <laughs> office for a while. But they're kind doing a lot of online place. stuff, Matt. Like the, the, the community yeah. is strong over there at Oakland. The, the community is strong. And, and man, if you're looking for a place that uh, is always trying to figure out 
how to how to stay connected. Uh, Oakland's doing a fantastic job, that's for sure. But the Oakland tip this week is. First-time homebuyers may be exempt in British Columbia from property transfer tax if you purchase a home under 500000 We all know property transfer tax is uh, not – you're not able to roll it into the mortgage, and it's a significant cost on top. So you definitely want to know if you're exempt from that. For more information, check out the BC provincial government's website, and they have uh, a calculator there and also a list of exemptions to see if you qualify. And Matt, we always have our own tip as well. So my tip this week is maybe take the opportunity during this social distancing and, and social isolation to cut your own hair. Because um, I know my everybody's looking pretty shaggy right now. And uh, I think I'm going give, to give it a crack uh, cutting my own hair. Really? Yeah. And I'm, I'm actually, I've, I've been inspired by friend of the show, uh, Jeff Poe who um, actually cut his own hair on Instagram the other day, and it was, uh, it was pretty great. He, it, it, was, it was actually a roller coaster. Um, at first, it looked horrible, and then it started looking good. Then it looked horrible, and then I was like, oh, man, he's just going to have to shave his head. And then he uh, pulled it together in the end, uh, but it was, it was a wild ride. Wow, this sounds like the next Vancouver Real Estate Live episode. <laughs> I, I honestly, uh, yeah, keep, keep, and if you are cutting your hair, make sure you document it because uh, there's been some, <laughs> some great haircut videos on Instagram. I'm really enjoying them. Right on. Well, hey, stay tuned for that. Adam cutting his hair. I'm going back to the late 90s uh, myself and, and going as long as possible. Yeah. But, well, you uh, already had the hey, puka should... shells. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but maybe we should cut to our, our talk with John Barry. This is a really, interesting conversation one that contextualizes what's going on right now in a really interesting way and also uh john is just obviously such an interesting guy that it's uh i could just, i could have talked to him for hours yeah for sure this is a a fantastic conversation you're not going to want to miss this conversation with new york times best-selling author john m barry Okay, so we're here with John Barry, historian and best-selling author of The Great Influenza. How are you doing, John? I'm doing okay so far. Th- thanks so much for taking the time today, John. Uh, maybe can you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm, I'm primarily a writer. That's what I consider myself. But uh, a couple of my, my books have gotten me involved in, in policy, one on a Mississippi River flood. Uh, actually after I live in New Orleans, after Katrina, I ended up serving on a post Katrina reform professional levy board. Uh, and this, uh, other book, the great influenza, which I guess is why you're asking me to be on. It came out in 2004 and was, uh, pretty well regarded in the scientific community. Uh, and I was asked to get involved in pandemic preparedness. And indeed, I even have a title of professor at the Tulane University School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine here in New Orleans. Excellent. Um, so, so, John, we're just, you know, in thinking about the 1918 Spanish flu, is COVID-19, uh, today's COVID-19, an apt comparison? I think it is, unfortunately. Uh, although, thankfully, it is considerably less virulent than uh, the 1918 virus. 
uh, but and, and therefore less lethal. However, it's actually more contagious, and since it will infect a lot more people, even with a lower case fatality rate, probably much lower, um, the death toll worldwide is certainly going to be in the millions, I think. And I'd like to hear, uh, we'd like to hear more more about um, uh, the Spanish flu. But do you think we're uh, more prepared today than we were 100 years ago for, for a global pandemic? Well, we're not prepared. On the other hand, are we more prepared today than we were then, almost by definition, because there was no preparation of any kind then. Uh, here, we are just simply poorly prepared, and many countries are bungling the response. Uh, even when they should have done a lot better. So to skip ahead, the 1918 pandemic, uh, you know, an animal virus uh, jumped species into humans uh, and respiratory virus uh, spread widely around the world, came in three ways. In total, it killed an estimated 50 to 100 million people, which adjusted for population would be equivalent to about 220 to 440 million people today. Uh, obviously, those are staggering numbers. Uh, the pathology and the modes of transmission uh, were quite similar to uh, COVID-19, uh, particularly the modes of transmission. You know, pretty much all respiratory viruses uh, transmit the same way. You know, droplets breathe in, you know, maybe some airborne transmission that's small in droplets, you know, and some hand transmission. Mostly, uh, mostly it's inhaled, uh, but there, in most respiratory d- diseases, there is some hand to mouth or hand to nose and hand to eyes. I think it's generally about 20% of transmission is considered for respiratory disease. There haven't been any studies done yet of COVID-19 to know exactly where it fits in that spectrum. There is still a scientific debate about precise means of transmission, uh, but in general, that pretty much covers it. What, what in in your mind, uh, was the biggest lesson from the Spanish flu, John? Well, that, that one's easy. There are, there were two lessons. Uh, first, tell the truth. The people in authority need to tell the truth. And second, social distancing. Uh, and the latter flows out of the former. In 1918, because the United States was at war, and most of you know Europe, not all, Spain and Switzerland, for example, some other small countries were not at war, maybe. Uh, <clears throat> but the focus here was entirely entirely on the war. So they created kind of an infrastructure of propaganda, which would not allow any negative news to be publicized at all. And the pandemic came along as a result of this pre-existing infrastructure, even national public health leaders. There was no Tony Fauci back then. Uh, National public health leaders said this is ordinary influenza by another name. It was known as Spanish flu, although it did not start there. In fact, it got the name because Spain was not at war and its press wrote about it uh, elsewhere that 
happened much less. So it picked up the name Spanish flu. But anyway, people were saying this is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, you have nothing to fear if proper precautions are taken. <clears throat> Other reassuring messages. As a general rule, local leaders in cities around the country echoed the same line, with very few exceptions. <clears throat> but it wasn't ordinary influenza by another name. The overwhelming majority of cases may have been. But in a minority, you could develop um, well, in, uh, symptoms not normally associated with influenza. Uh, for one thing, you could die in less than 24 hours. Other symptoms led to misdiagnoses initially as uh, cholera, typhoid, dengue. You could bleed not only from your nose and mouth. In some army camps where they have good data, 15% of the soldiers bled from the nose. But people could even bleed, though rarely, from their eyes and ears, which is pretty scary. <clears throat> so you have public health authorities saying this is ordinary influenza by another name. At the same time, mass graves are being dug. And the result of that was not at all reassuring. What it told people was that they couldn't believe anything that they heard. Uh, and it left them to their own devices. And society itself in some cities began to fray because of that. So that's one of the most important, the most important lesson, I guess, is to tell the truth, be totally transparent so that people can recognize what they're dealing with. Uh, and again, when you make a recommendation for social distancing, if people don't believe they're being treated with respect and told the truth, they're not going to pay any attention to any recommendation you, you make. So it's the truth is crucial in getting compliance with any recommendations you make. John, I, I'm just curious. Do, do you think governments are telling the truth today? Uh, well, it depends on the government. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure what the Canadian response is. Um, uh, in the United States, obviously, it, for a couple of months, uh, the White House was... They weren't outright lying about it, but they were trivializing it. And, and then for that matter, a lie has to be knowing. I'm not sure that Trump wasn't simply ignorant, you know, and he may have believed what he said. It's hard to imagine otherwise because it was so obviously against his own self-interest to trivialize it to the extent that he did if he really knew what was going to happen. So I assume he was just foolish and ignorant in his earlier statements, as opposed to outright lying. Obviously, he has misled the public about all sorts of things throughout his presidency and continues to, even on the pandemic. But as of two and a half weeks ago, he became quite serious about the outbreak and you know said we're at war. So he improved significantly on that. Uh, the rest of the administration was trying to be forthright. Uh, obviously, Tony Fauci, uh, CDC, and uh, I guess that's about it. And elsewhere in the world, it varies. You've got uh, Brazil, uh, which is worse than uh, its president, worse than Trump at his worst. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, 
obviously Iran lied about it initially uh, to its detriment. Uh, China tried to hide it at the beginning, although I'm not sure if that was a conscious decision by the higher-ups or whether it was just lost in the bureaucracy, people not wanting to displease their bosses. You know, again, varies place to place. You know, South Korea, Singapore, Taiwan are models of Hong Kong, models of how to treat this disease. They managed, they certainly told the truth to their populace, and they have managed to stay ahead of it uh, without closing their economies down. In, in fact, uh, Singapore didn't even close its schools. Uh, but their prime minister was extremely forthright when a panic uh, sort of started to erupt and, and laid out all the facts and gut cooperation, widespread testing, and so forth. Uh, and they have managed to stay ahead of it. They certainly haven't eliminated it. It continues to spread, but you know, in, in numbers utterly disproportionate, even on a per capita basis, to many other places in the world, including the United States. Can you talk a little bit about kind of timelines for for the the Spanish flu? Like, how long did it, it take to play out, and and do you think that's a good model for for thinking about um, COVID nineteen? Well, unfortunately, it's not a good model. There was a first wave, which was actually very mild. It was so mild you could read medical journal articles saying this looks like influenza, smells like influenza, but not enough people are dying, so it can't be influenza. Uh, then, the, and that first wave was hit or miss. Uh, a lot of it skipped over entirely. Many places, other places, it was widespread, but again, as a general rule, mild. Then came a lethal second wave, which arrived in, in almost simultaneously everywhere in the world from late September or, or to mid-October and then lasted through December. Uh, that killed probably about two-thirds of uh, all the deaths were probably in that uh, second wave, maybe even a little more. And then there was a third wave in the spring of 1919. The difference between influenza, and it's an important difference, and COVID-19 is the incubation period. Influenza is one to four days. In most of the cases, uh, people get sick 48 hours after infection. COVID-19, as you know, is much, much slower moving. Uh, that means that it will be with us you know, over a much longer period of time. Influenza would hit a community and be gone within 10 weeks, uh, usually less than that. Uh, usually six to eight weeks, and then it would more or less, it would still circulate, but not at, in epidemic proportions. COVID nineteen, it's hard to figure out exactly how long it's going to be around. Uh, for one thing, I think like influenza, it's going to be with us forever. Uh, we're certainly not going to exterminate the virus. Uh, although, you know, if we get drugs and vaccines plus natural immunity, uh, once our immune systems have seen it, it, there's a very good chance it will not be anything like the problem it presents to us right now. John, in just thinking about the Spanish flu and, and how it came in three waves, do, do you see the potential of a, a more lethal wave coming as a second no, wave? No, there's 
1918, there was, uh, I'm glad you asked that question because I want to reassure the, your listeners. Uh, in 1918, even though it was generally mild, there were many, many hints of real virulence, real lethality. Uh, and, and so it was clear that that virus always had the potential to erupt in a really lethal form. There isn't the slightest hint anywhere in the world that this virus would change in that direction, fortunately. And my understanding is that the Spanish flu, uh, whereas COVID-19, at least it seems most people still are under the perception that it, that it seems to be kind of the 40 or 50 plus is the, are the people that are getting hit, uh, most aggressively. It, 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 my understanding of the Spanish flu is it was, right. it was younger people. Yeah, exactly. The peak age for death in 1918 was 28. Uh, probably two thirds of the dead were aged 18 to 45 or 50. Um, so it was quite different. Uh, in, in 1918, well over 90% of the excess mortality was in people younger than 65 which is the exact opposite, not only of COVID-19, but normally of influenza. So what must have happened was that there was a, those people age 65 and older had been exposed to a virus very, very similar to the 1918 virus sometime in their youth, and it gave them an, a natural immune protection. And even though that virus was similar enough that it uh, gave them some immunity, nonetheless, it was so mild that there's essentially no record of it in medical history. I mean, there are some, some people have gone back and, and seen hints of it in retrospect, uh, of a wave of, a, what was probably an H1N1 pandemic, uh, but nothing contemporaneous that, uh, made any comment on any outbreak of an influenza illness. So, largely lost to history. And and just thinking about social, the idea of social distancing, it sounds like, um, as I understand the the Spanish flu, there there wasn't this idea, like it was kind of more business as usual, people talking about it, uh, more like the flu. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, specifically in North America, the economic impact of, of the Spanish flu? And this idea of social distancing, like, does it resemble today in, in any way in the terms that we're kind of shutting down? Well, you know, we, we didn't have nearly as much knowledge uh, as we do now um, back then. But pretty much every, almost every city in the United States, and I'm not sure about what happened in Canada, uh, ended up doing many of the things that we're doing today. And in fact, the reason I was asked to get involved in uh, those pandemic preparedness at, uh, planning efforts, uh, you know, 15, 16 years ago, uh, was because of my knowledge of 1918 and people wanted to analyze what cities did in 1918. And almost all of them did things like closing schools, bars, you know, being public gatherings and so forth and so on. And you analyze it and you figure out that the cities that waited until there were a lot of deaths in the community, those things had very little impact. And the reason was the virus was very widely disseminated already before they took any action. 
but the cities had acted pretty early and when the outbreak came to them, they definitely flattened the curve. And in some cases, they had relatively benign experiences, although that's not entirely clear that uh, that was because of the social distancing. But flattening the curve was clearly because of social distancing. Um, but they did not close down the economies, uh, close down businesses, largely because of the war. You know, they, they had to produce goods to send to soldiers and so forth. But the economy certainly stumbled. Uh, even in, in plants where we have good data, uh, which would be like shipyards, uh, these are places where the workers were told they was important to the war effort as soldiers on the front line. They didn't get pay, paid if they didn't show up at work. And they actually had medical care at work, which was unavailable in the civilian community during the pandemic. There were almost no doctors out there. They had all been uh, drafted into the army, practically. Uh, nurses also. So, so despite those three things, medical care, pay, and patriotism, these shipyards had absenteeism in the 40% to 60% range. Uh, so you can imagine that in other industries, which didn't involve those, uh, the, the patriotism and provided med medical care, the absenteeism was probably higher. According to Metropolitan Life, uh, I think it was 3.26% of the entire population of industrial workers aged 18 to 45 died. That's not case fatality. That's 3.26% of the entire population of those people at age group. And remember, this is in an incredibly impressed, uh, compressed time frame uh, of just a few weeks, that many people dying. So there's a good chance you weren't going to go to work if you see people around you dropping dead. Right. Uh, right. So, you know, even though they didn't order these businesses closed, they many of them were effectively uh, shut down or at least uh, crippled. It was not a good time. <laughs> no, kidding, no kidding. That, That's kind of staggering over 3%. That's, that's unbelievable. So, you know, right now, of course, the situation is quite different. We, we are in the United States way behind the curve and way behind where we should have been. It's almost unbelievable we're as far back as we have been, particularly on testing, but also in other things. And, uh, you know, this basically closing down the country, or a very good proportion of it, is an effort to try to catch up to where Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, you know, we're way behind, you know. Uh, but if we can slow the transmission, flatten the curve, which you've heard two million times by now. Well, let me tell you what that actually means. The most important number is coming out of China is that the fatality rate in Wuhan was 5.8%. And the fatality rate in the rest of China was 0.7%. It's not because medical care was any different. It's because medical care was available. In Wuhan, there were no intensive care unit beds available. They ran out of ventilators and so forth. And 
the result was a very high case fatality rate. In the rest of China, where resources were available because they did limit transmission, then people survived. So that's what flattening the curve means. If you don't flatten the curve, you get the Wuhan 5.8% case fatality rate. If you do flatten the curve, you get the 0.7%. Right. It's very important. So, so in other words, then, if, if basically, if, if, if hospitals are prepared and can actually accommodate and not be overrun, um, then, then municipalities fare better. Much better. Exactly. And, and just thinking about, uh, you know, the, the kind of, as you mentioned, in the U.S., the woeful unpreparedness at this point, and you were speaking before about the communities that were kind of late to the game got, got hit pretty hard even even after they tried to kind of play catch up what are your what are your thoughts on uh the next couple of months or is there any reason to be optimistic here uh well the, yes i mean to start with number one i'm over 70 so i'm not too happy about <laughs> the situation i'm retired uh but, I mean, this is not going to wipe out civilization. It's not the bubonic plague. Uh, you know, taking a quarter to a third of the population of Europe. So that's number one. Uh, you know, we will recover. And number two, you know, we there's very good chance we'll have a good vaccine. Um, it's one of the differences between this virus and influenza is, is that the, this virus... Uh, does not mutate uh, nearly as rapidly as influenza, and particularly the target for a vaccine. That part of the virus seems fairly stable, which is different from influenza. Now, that doesn't automatically mean we'll have a good, easy vaccine, but there's a lot of reason for optimism. Of course, that's still more than a year out. Or um, The other thing is therapeutic drugs. Uh, I'm not sure how quickly they can come online. You know, it's certainly a matter of months at best, but still, there there are drugs that seem to have shown promise. And then we do have some control over what happens to us. So it is up to your listeners. You know, social distancing works. They proved that in multiple countries. They have gotten ahead of the virus. You know, it continues to spread, but in low numbers that the healthcare system can handle quite easily and probably won't spread to the majority of the population in places like, again, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, South Korea, and maybe Iceland, might throw Iceland in there too. Uh, But if you don't comply with the recommendations, you are hurting not only yourself, but uh, the whole community. So, you know, the optimism is that we do have a chance to affect the course of this disease. Every one of us does, but you have to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if, if people comply, we, everyone will be a lot better off. I'm, you know, I'm down in New Orleans, the, the governor of Louisiana, you know, a 34-year-old member of his staff just died. You know, this is not simply something that is dangerous to people over 70, as I am. It is dangerous to younger people. 
particularly if there is an underlying condition, which could be anything from asthma to, you know, uh, you recovered from cancer, there's a pretty good chance you had radiation, which damages your immune system. So you got a weaker immune system. If you're walking around with HIV, you've got a weakened immune system. Uh, even if it's, uh, probably if it's undetectable, I'm, I'm not absolutely certain about that science. Uh, so I probably should be careful what I say there. Uh, but there are, you know, diabetes, that's an underlying condition. It makes it dangerous for somebody. And, you know, it is not just old folks and there are young people dying. Uh, there are also some indications. I don't know that it's established. So I don't, I guess I'll say it anyway, cause I started to, you know, the people who are overweight, that may well be an underlying condition. Uh, I know it is for influenza. And there is some indication, although it's not confirmed, that it may be for COVID-19 as well. So there are a lot of, you know, I would, if in fact overweight is, is one of the underlying conditions, you know, I'm sure that pretty much all of your listeners know somebody who would qualify right. uh, in any age group. So, yeah, so those are the reasons for optimism. I think a vaccine is not only just a hope, but I think there's a very good chance that we'll have a good vaccine. Two, drugs, although they are still months away. Three, right now, today, people pay attention and do what they're advised to do. We can get some control over what happens to us real control and, and make sure that instead of that 5.8% case fatality rate, it's 0.7%. Maybe just, uh, just, um, you know, obviously we're, we're at a stage here where, uh, it's, it's very uncertain how long we're, we're kind of in the position we are now. Um, but, but thinking about, kind of the aftermath of the Spanish flu, you know, you see people talking about a depression uh, or a very deep recession. You hear people talking about, you know, uh, different uh, ways of thinking about the role of government after this. There's going to be sort of major kind of fundamental shifts. Uh, not that we're asking you to, <laughs> to weigh in on, on what the future looks like now, but can you talk, did, did you, did you look into kind of how, the Spanish flu uh, changed kind of the the cultural uh, scene of, of the United States uh, after oh. after they got it under control. I think well, it went away. They didn't get it under control. <laughs> you know, it it you know people got natural immunity. So I mean, it still would infect them, but it became like seasonal influenza. I think the virus itself may have mutated toward mildness. Uh, you know, the war ended. And there actually was a uh, brief but fairly intense uh, recession when people came, when soldiers came back uh, from overseas. And then you had the Roaring Twenties. I don't think I, there was much impact on the economy that lasted for any length of time from the pandemic. I think that recession was probably, I've never really examined it, but my guess is there was this displacement, <clears throat> you know, with a, you know, several million soldiers suddenly looking for work. Right. Uh, 
uh, and there was just a transition time. In terms of culture, that's very speculative. My own guess, but it's just a hypothesis, is that the whole attitude of the Roaring Twenties had something to do with the pandemic. You know, the devil may care. You know, who cares what happens tomorrow? I think that attitude that the pandemic certainly contributed to it. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, I think Fitzgerald wrote, all God's dead, all wars fought, all face and man shaken. Uh, he wrote that in the early 20s. And, you know, that was sort of the attitude of the time. Maybe there was an ennui, a malaise, sense of malaise. Um, but again, total speculation. I will say that uh, Christopher Isherwood wrote Berlin Stories, uh, from which the movie Cabaret came, which I think is one of the greatest movies of all time. And if your listeners haven't seen it, perfect time to stream it. Uh, anyway, when the Nazis entered Berlin 15 years after the pandemic, 1933, he wrote, you could feel it like influenza in your bones. Uh, so, you know, clearly he expected his audience to know exactly what that analogy meant, you know, both pain and dread. Uh, so that sense was still out there 15 years later, uh, but there's been remarkably little that was written about the pandemic. Uh, John Dos Passos, one of my favorite writers, and he got it on a troop ship going to France. And those things were like floating coffins. He never wrote about her, you know, about two sentences. Uh, you know, there's uh, Catherine Ann Porter, I guess, a classic pale horse, pale rider. And William Maxwell wrote a few stories about it in the New Yorker. Uh, but by and large, you would have expected a lot of literature as there was out of the war. But no. So. Yeah, because I was, I was going to say, uh, I just noted here as we were talking, like one thing that's kind of kind of strikes me about the Spanish flu is, you know, it's you, you've heard of it, you hear about it, uh, but it's not like in 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 thinking of the 20th century, it's not uh, it's not one of those exclamation point type moments. At least I haven't thought about it that way, and yet this feels like. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully I'm right about this, that this is going to be a, a fairly major uh, defining event. Uh, and I only say that because I hope nothing worse comes around. But uh, this feels like it's a global major defining event that's going to be talked about for a long time. But maybe it's just a misremembering of the history on my part. No, I think this will be. Um, partly because historians are different now. Partly because, yeah, I mean, the war... To call the World War One a distraction is kind of an understatement. <laughs> Nonetheless, you know that had everyone's focus, and the pandemic basically lasted in a particular community ten weeks. That was it, maybe less, and was you know so it was more of a blip. Uh, mm -hmm. This is not a blip. And this is the way changing the way people live. 
it, maybe just one one question, John, about um, about some of the uh, some of the uh, predictions that have kind of come out of the White House. I know that they just did some recent modeling where they're now saying that potentially up to a hundred thousand or two hundred and forty thousand deaths in the U.S. could could happen as a result of of COVID nineteen. Um, are, are, do you think that's an optimistic estimate? Um, well, I'm not a modeler, so. Right. Uh, and yeah, you may be familiar with the, uh, saying all models are wrong. Some are useful. That was, <laughs> that was useful enough to get, uh, Donald Trump's attention right. and to get him to forget about his Easter reopening nonsense. Right. You, and I think that would be a number that I would think the medical community and the public health community would be very, very happy with. Right. Hundreds, 200,000. You know, I certainly think it's possible um, if we get medical supplies out everywhere and if the curve is flattened. If, however, people ignore uh, social distancing or simply get tired of it which is a problem and will become a problem. May not have so much yet. We're only a couple of weeks into it, but you stretch it out four or five, six weeks. We'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, but if we comply with the social distancing, uh, you know, then I think we have the opportunity eventually to get a little bit ahead of it. You know, the testing is so delayed. The virus is so widely disseminated. I don't know if we'll ever get to the point where South Korea and, in in Singapore and so forth and a couple of other Asian countries in Iceland have gotten. Uh, but you know, we will we will see. We can hope for the best and prepare for the worst. That's something you've never heard before. Right. <laughs> maybe maybe the final just thought uh here looking from from uh Canada at least, it seems like um, you know, we were watching the the primaries, uh, or at least Adam and myself were were watching them with with a lot of interest. And it seems like uh, I haven't heard all that much about Joe Biden lately. But do you think this? Uh, obviously, this will play a huge role in the election in in uh, the fall. But do you think this changes the outcome? Well, I think Biden was likely to win anyway. Uh, I think this will make him more likely to win. I think right now uh, Trump has got solid majority support for his handling of the pandemic because I think people are not knowledgeable about what hasn't happened. I think that will be pointed out. More than that, um, as more people die, that will become more obvious. Uh, I think Biden is largely laid low. He's made a few statements. He's appeared on uh, I, a couple of times in the last week on MSNBC, and, which is essentially a Democratic network, and CNN, which is, you know, more middle of the road. Um, but uh, you, you don't want to make this partisan at this point. There'll mm-hmm. be plenty of time to uh, dissect the incredible poor response of this administration. And, you know, right now, I mean, we are all in it together. I hope Trump succeeds because that means, uh, you know, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives will be saved in the United States alone. Uh, 
if he suddenly gets it together. You know, I wish he had followed Fauci's advice from the beginning. Uh, right. We could have done some of these things earlier. He could have been, he could still be more, much more aggressive in taking charge of uh, the supply situation, which is just amazing to me that that hasn't happened. It's incomprehensible almost. But again, all that will play out. Well, well, maybe we'll leave it there, John. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for your time. And uh... well, I, I'm just curious, John. A lot of our listeners are going to want to know where to to find find your writing and and learn more about you. Um, well, I have a. I am. Uh, I'm not a luddite, but I never seem to find the time to learn how to handle technology. <laughs> <laughs> I have a website, you know, johnmbarry.com, which I actually sort of tried to update it a few days ago. I hadn't updated in years. Uh, I actually gave my publisher the password and asked them, could they try to put it in shape? <laughs> I don't know if they've done that yet. But, you know, uh, at this point, my books are, you know, available pretty much everywhere. Right. Uh, I would hope, and I would hope someone buys them from a local bookstore. Who right now, Amazon's only problem is getting stuff out the door. They're doing more business than ever. Whereas your local bookstore, and they can ship books to you just like Amazon. Your local bookstores are starving. So find some independent bookstore, and uh, and you know you you will help the economy. You will help keep people fed, uh, and you will help yourself by feeling good, I think, by helping somebody else. You know, let me make one last point. That's, uh, you know, most disasters, communities come together. Uh, in 1918, that didn't happen, largely, I think, because people were lied to, so they had to turn on, uh, re- to rely on themselves and, and not anybody else. It was... Uh, that was, as I said earlier, sort of a frame of society. Uh, but anecdotally, here where I am in the French Quarter in New Orleans, which no place could, could be hit harder than here, is not only is it pure tourism, but we're also an oil state, and the collapse of oil prices is is killing the economy in Louisiana as well. You know, and yet I I sense a you know, a sense of community. You, you, there's hardly anybody on the street, particularly in the French Quarter, where there aren't that many full-time residents. But, you know, I see people that I've never talked to before, a few blocks from me. And when I, I do go for walks, which I think is totally safe, uh, you know, but there's, you know, people offer to help. I have friends, I'm, as I said, I'm over 70, younger friends of mine who volunteered. I didn't ask them to go to the market for me things like that. So I appreciate it. And, and hopefully we will act more as a community uh, than we have, and we will come together. But again, that too remains to be seen and is up to you and your listeners. Well, well, maybe we'll leave it there, but we, we really appreciate your time today, John. I know you're, you're, you're speaking to a lot of different media outlets right now. And uh, thank you for your, uh, for your work right now. Uh, uh, it's uh, hugely appreciated worldwide, I'm sure. 
Well, I think you may have overstated it, but that's kind of you to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, have a great day. You too. Stay well. So there you have it, folks. Our discussion with John Barry, New York Times best-selling author and uh, and all around really interesting and knowledgeable guy. Yeah, really enjoyed that conversation with John Matt, and it's not that often that we get a New York Times bestseller on this program, but uh, really, really appreciated him taking the time. And I know he's been talking to the media like just all day, basically for the last week or so. But uh, well, well, it sounds like the media and uh, uh, policy people from a number of different countries. I know the first time uh, we. Spoke spoke to him he was on the phone with brazil yes no big deal <laughs> so so john's very very busy and it was so good talking to him uh and of course we hope he stays safe in new orleans which is uh getting hit fairly hard with covid19 and uh and also safe from the rat in his house yeah <laughs> when we first called him he had a rat that was in his house that he was dealing with and he couldn't get an exterminator to come out so um I guess that's that's a that's a East Vancouver I, problem and a New Orleans problem. Yeah, I was gonna say there's only two places I know of where that might, that's an issue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My Outside block. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, but it, but Matt, the other thing I want to just highlight is is John made a really great point at the end of the interview when he asked everybody to buy his book from a local bookshop. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't think we can state it, uh, any clearer than he already has, but really we should be so- supporting local businesses that we want to be here, uh, when we come out of this and turn a corner. So I hope everybody is buying local at this time. And you actually had a, um, I think, I think you had a tweet from Francis Beulah that you wanted to read. Francis Beulah, journalist, uh, local kind of hero of the journalist community, uh, prolific tweeter fan favorite past guest she's been on our show more than once <laughs> uh, she kind of put a put a fine point on this uh i think it was probably at least a week back but i found it francis wrote just remember folks the world you want after this is all over is a world you're supporting now order everything from amazon and that's what will take over support your local businesses and you help them be part of in capitals the after so I think that is a, is a fantastic way to frame this. Sure. Um, local businesses need everyone's support more than ever uh, in these trying times. And Amazon will be here no matter what. Uh, but will all the local businesses that we all love in Vancouver be is, uh, is another question. And uh, I think your support will go a long way at this point. And speaking of amazing local businesses, shout out to Ramey from RameyFilms.com. Uh, who has been helping us with our video marketing and video production. So Ramey's fantastic. I hope he's, uh, I haven't, we haven't seen Ramey in a long time. I'm sure his, uh, his hair is long, his beard is huge, and he's uh, editing something, I'm sure. <laughs> editing something or wiping something down with a Lysol. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but Shout out to Ramey. Absolutely. And what, what else do we got before we go here, Adam? We got our website, that's VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. We're putting out two episodes, at least for the time being, a week right now. Uh, all of our content, our resources are over at VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. So head over there to check out 
everything we're doing here and we're trying to keep everyone as in the know uh, on Vancouver real estate as possible during these trying times. For sure, Matt. And if anyone wants to chat uh, about anything, really, um, it's, it's, it's interesting times and, and uh, I feel like more than anything, I feel like I'm on my phone a lot these days. I'm sure you are as well. But if you want an update on what's happening in real estate or if you just want to chat, feel free to give us a call. We are around. Uh, my schedule is surprisingly open these days. Uh, so, Matt, how can people get in touch? Yeah, the only thing I got going on is I'm teaching grade three math from nine till 10. <laughs> but other than that, uh, I'm wide open for a call. 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. You, you've always had that job, though, even, even in regular <laughs> times, haven't you? I'm, yeah, I'm just not going into the school now. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also have that squirrely line. <laughs> info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com yeah i don't know what's going on with secret but i'm i'm guessing that uh this like jim morrison later years is gonna emerge from a, a bunker somewhere <laughs> i was thinking elvis later yeah years. <laughs> maybe elvis later years. i don't know but uh yeah I, i'm sure the hair is the hair is out of control <laughs> all right guys well have a good weekend uh stay safe uh, stay inside, and we'll be back next week. Have a good week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. 
if you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.